Welcome back to the Line Podcast. My name is Aaron Alexander. This is a place that we bring together the world's leading experts in all things health and wellness to help you optimize your mind, body, and movement. Today's conversation is something I've been really excited to learn more about and also share about, and that is the fundamental principles of Buddhism uh, and also mindfulness and meditation. But the big thing I was really excited about was breaking down some of the deep philosophy of Buddhism and how we can integrate some of those principles into our daily lives. So the guest today is world-renowned meditation teacher, Manash Diaz. He is the author of Still Together. He is the founder of Open, which is a global meditation app. And um, I get, I've personally gotten a lot of use out of it myself. And so super excited to get to get into this conversation. He was raised under the Theravadan Buddhist traditions and uh, in this conversation, we essentially break down the Eightfold Path to Ending Suffering, uh, also the Four Noble Truths, which is essentially is like a synopsis of what is suffering, why does it exist, where does it come from, and how do we sort that out in our lives. So get your notepad out. I personally use the one on my cell phone and do a little like note app, and I think this is a highly shareable, highly note-takeable episode. Um, just getting into being able to sit with these Four Noble Truths and then also getting into the Eightfold Path to Ending Suffering. I think each point is invaluable. Uh, I think this is an incredibly pertinent and relevant episode for, I mean, really any person with a body. And uh, I'm excited to share it. So let's get to it with my guy, Minaj Diaz. And uh, also, if you want to go deeper into meditation, start a practice yourself. You can utilize the app open. Uh, you can also grab his book still together. And he also has really lovely stuff on social media. So that is it. That is all. Let's get to it with Magai Minash. What's up, man? Thanks for making time to do this, man. Oh, it's such a pleasure. Such a pleasure to be out here in Austin and get a chance to do this face to face. There was a few things that I was excited to talk about. Uh, one was Buddhism and using Buddhism and the principles um, that have been outlined for us to navigate this human experience. Uh, so I wanted to get into the Four Noble Truths. Eightfold Path, yeah. Yeah, I wanted to get into that and kind of just create like a guide for people to navigate this internal, at times, what feels to be turmoil inside of our our minds mm. in between our ears. Otherwise known as the human condition. The human condition. <laughs> so why the hell do we suffer so much? Uh, well, in short, it's because we're human, <laughs> right? Uh, I think that this idea of suffering, it can sound um, really doom and gloom and morbid, but suffering contains essentially anything where we're just not satisfied with the moment that we're in. An example is, say I'm here and I'm here for 90 minutes. This seat will contain suffering because my body will start to be like, I don't want to sit here. Mm. If for whatever reason I'm feeling tired and I just want this podcast to end, which is not the case, by the way, that's a moment of suffering. But suffering on a broader scale can be things like stress, anxiety, worry, um, overthinking, uh, fear, rumination, jealousy. These are all uh, emotions in which we're just not satisfied with the moment that we're in. So another word for suffering is actually dissatisfaction. And I've heard some Buddhist teachers that even call uh, imperfection a, uh, another form of suffering. And so 
purely by being born, we are of the nature to suffer, meaning we are going to do that. There is actually no way we can avoid doing it. What we can do is to understand our minds. And when we understand our minds, we get to understand the minds of all humans. And this helps us reduce suffering. Now, if we're talking about eradicating suffering completely, then that's a whole different path of practice and study and contemplation and reflection and usually would lead someone down the monastic path. But for the average person, and I put myself in that, uh, learning to understand our own minds greatly reduces our suffering and improves our happiness and our well-being. Hmm. All right. So the the first of the noble truths is that suffering is here. Mm-hmm. They call it dukkha. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like dookie. Mm-hmm. You know, we have dookie in our lives. Yeah. Uh, the second of the noble truths is that there's a reason for the suffering. Yeah. What yeah. the hell is the reason? Well, one of the reasons, and probably the main reason, is our clinging and our grasping and our desire for suffering not to exist is essentially the second noble truth. And so the examples I gave you before, I'm here, I am not pleased with the chair I'm in, I'm suffering. I don't move. I don't say to you, hey, can we change this chair? I'm getting a bit distracted. I just sit there and I'm like, can I swear in this podcast? I think I've already sweared several times. Great. I'll be the first to do it. Great. Yeah. I swear a lot. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the, the the reflection there is that I could be like, fuck, like I just, I'm so in pain. I'm so anxious. I can't wait to get out of here. And so instead of actually addressing the suffering, I sit there kind of ruminating on the suffering. And so the desire for things to be different than the way they actually are is the second noble truth. How does a person start to exercise their relationship to attachment? I think is a thing, you know, because there's things happen. Mm. And then there's like, I've heard you describe another, I don't know if it's like a, a, a Buddhism of uh, the talking about the arrows. You get shot with two arrows, one's in the body, the other's in, in the head. Oh, so yeah. you have like the physical experience of some shit happened. And then you have your filter, your perception of what, th- what that means. Who, who, who am I now? You know, why did this happen to me? Why me? And now we start to linger with this secondary layer of suffering. Yeah, that, that actually pertains to you know, pretty much the first noble truth, which is there's a, an ancient um, Buddhist tale of the, the story of the two arrows. I think it's called the Salata Sutta. Um, and the story goes that uh, the Buddha spoke to one of his disciples and he was essentially getting him to stop ruminating on what he was suffering on. And so he gave the analogy of the two arrows. And the two arrows is... A, the first arrow that we all inevitably will get hit with in our lives. And that includes, you know, things not going our way, maybe losing a loved one, uh, things coming to an end, things changing, you know, because that makes us suffer. We don't want relationships to change. We don't want our body to change. We don't want our financial situations to change. When that happens and we're all affected by that, there is suffering there. But then instead of tending to that, instead of taking out that first arrow, we tend to get shot with another arrow. And this is the arrow that we give ourselves in which contains all the meaning attached to the first arrow. So I'm not good enough. That's why I'm always in this position. Or I'm unlovable. That's why all these relationships don't work out. Or I'm just a bad person. I'm terrible. I'm human. And so we attach meaning to the first arrow. And the analogy is instead of actually tending to the first arrow, instead of taking it out, you know, feeling the weight of that, you know, which is heartbreaking, which is painful, we tend to add this other arrow and we tend to add the, add the other arrow because that makes us feel safe. You know, we're like, okay, if, if I can understand this conceptually, why I'm shot, then uh, it'll hurt less. 
which is not the actual case psychologically speaking like the more we actually tend to our pain and sorrow and the more we can actually allow ourselves to feel that without giving it meaning the quicker it actually heals you know from a long-term perspective but the second arrow is usually the one that hurts us more because it's the one that causes all sorts of um, ideas and stories and narratives that ultimately aren't helpful i wonder where those different each of us has a different set point for the the narratives that we um, mm. tell ourselves i wonder how a person I, I mean i think this gets into the the eightfold path and gets into the four noble truths and all that uh, which i want to keep on outlining that typically i'm very um you know, i'm not very organized with having a structured mm. way of doing this but i think it'd be interesting for my own sake mm. to have that to be able to come back to uh, so i'm going to try and stay on that path great um, but I, I wonder how a person starts to gain relationship with the flavor of their narrative. Yeah. You know, have a sense of, of self. Because I think it's very easy to see tendencies and patterns within another person. And sometimes it's not so easy to see it within myself, you know, or ourselves. And, you know, taking, taking a step back for a moment, like when we introduce even the topic of, of Buddhism as, um, as an exploration for the conversation today, I think many of us approach that and there is a tension that we have. You know, for some of us that have perhaps been raised in, in different um, religions or we have you know, atheistic beliefs, we can think of Buddhism being uh, such a religion that like very monolithic and that has a certain um, I'm good, I'm bad flavor to it, you know, like original sin, for example. Right? Which is a story. That's a, that's a, a, a downloaded piece of information into our software the right. concept of morality and good and bad right 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 and morality is so subjective as well right yeah. that's the other interesting thing but the 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 uh, the main premise around buddhism is for it they're not to be someone that you worship that you idolize that creates a dualism within your experience meaning like i am this poor suffering individual here is this uh god that is enlightened and you know i pray to buddha so you know you can transform me that's actually never been the case and the buddha was just a historical dude <laughs> you know he was, he was a person and he was a person that was going through his own suffering and his own suffering contained desires to be someone else he was like there has to be more to life than this and the original story of the buddha is actually so fascinating and interesting for me because it's a nice allegory for the context of modern life whereas here is someone that was born into nobility he was born a prince he had everything he ever wanted uh when the buddha was born his father great king in northern india at, the, at that point took him to a uh a mystic or a fortune teller and the fortune teller essentially said that uh your son is either going to be an incredibly famous, great, you know, religious person, or he's going to be an incredibly great warrior king. And the father was obviously like, yeah, I, I want my son to be a king. I don't want him to be a monastic. Yeah. And so he hid him from everything external to the palace. So he gave him every rich he could offer. Like he had consorts, he had everything. And his father actually curated his life so he would never see suffering. Right, so he never let him out of the gates. He would never let him see anyone sick or dying, or every desire was given to him because that was the luxury of a king. But he managed to somehow sneak out a few times, and on his ventures out, he saw someone sick, he saw someone dying, and he saw an old person, and he started to realize, okay, that there is more to life than the trappings of everything that I have. And this curiosity for me is something. I, I mean, I have it. 
when I get X amount of money or when I get married or when I have this house, I'm going to be happy. And the reality is, for me anyway, maybe this is for other people, is that when we get the things that we want, there is some still a level of discontent. There is something that's still missing. And that could be, oh, I want a bigger house. I want a better wife <laughs> or I want more money. And so understanding, and this is really the framework of Buddhist meditation and, and mindfulness practice, secular mindfulness, is beginning to look at our minds and look at what we are grasping for as a method of satisfying something that is largely unsatisfiable, right? We, the more we get, the more we want. So then how can we reorientate our minds? How can we train our minds, train our hearts, get more in touch with our humanity to be like, okay, like this is great. Like I can achieve, I can, I can, I can grow, I can be a better person, I can get more money, but I'm still satisfied with this version. It doesn't mean that we stop doing that. It doesn't mean that we just give up, you know, yearning and desiring and achieving and, um, you know, wanting to, to get the best out of ourselves. It just means we're approaching it from a place of wholeness. It's yeah. like, oh, I'm, I'm, already, I'm already a good person. Yeah. And all of these things are nice, but they're ultimately not going to define me. And so to your point, like the, the, the basic premise of this practice is getting to really know our minds and understand our minds. And the place to begin is awareness right like it's really building a level of awareness both for ourselves and for the world around us and it starts with ourself meditation and mindfulness is one way of doing it for sure but then another way if you don't want to do those things is just to actually look just to observe notice what happens when you eat for example do you eat without even thinking about the next bite that's going to come in? Are you just doing this very autonomic activity? like, Or do you take a bite, eat, swallow, notice, huh, am I full? Am I just eating the next one because that's what I'm meant to do? Is there any sort of awareness around how I'm engaging with this activity? And you'll start to get a glimpse into the nature of your mind at a very minuscule scale. Yeah. It's like the engaging in some type of quote unquote practice to realize that you are a piece on a board within a game. You know, if it's Monopoly or something, you're the shoe or whatever your piece is and you call it Minaj and you say you're this ethnicity and this sex and these are your interests and your favorite ice cream is whatever. And you're like, you can really be absorbed in that, which is so beautiful. And then there's also the awareness that this is a game and I can play it any way I'd like. And it's not that, that, that it, life stops at the board and life stops at the piece. There's also like this whole other magical world that we have access to at any time. And I think oftentimes what, what, what can happen when people get too spiritual or new agey or whatever is they kind of divorce themselves of the game. And they're like, oh, the game is bad. You know, I'm not into the game. I think typically people in that situation are just bitter because they've been probably losing the game. Yeah, I mean, I think that the Buddhist view is that um, enjoy the game, try to win, but don't get attached. Yeah, like play the game brilliantly. Like be, get like completely, there's a, there's a quote from some basketball coach. He said the key to a, a great player is for them to know enough to play the game well, but not so much to realize the game doesn't matter. Right. So I think there's an interesting dance we can engage with within our career, within our relationships. Mm -hmm. Like if you're two out there and two in the in the cosmos and samadhi or whatever, it might be 
not the easiest thing to even have a relationship with uh, your wife. Right. Totally. You know, so there's something about those carnal desires and like, like, absolutely, like be here for it. Yeah. And realize this is not all there is. Yeah. Yeah. And also um, exploring the implications of that. Right. And so one of the interesting uh, byproducts of a self-awareness practice, and then I'll speak about the secular view and then the Buddhist view. Mm -hmm. The Buddhist view is that there are implications from our actions. And so some people refer to this as karma. And karma is not like, ooh, I stole a chocolate bar. I'm going to trip over a banana peel the next day. Um, it happens over lifetimes, which is a Buddhist view and the Buddhist belief. Is that, you know, the, the more goodness or the more wholesome activity that you can conduct within your life, the more wholesome activity you will experience, either in this life or another life. And so this is just cause and effect, which is a, it's a scientific phenomenon. It's not you know, anything outside of that. Now, if you look at the, the role karma plays, and that's probably going into more of a, a religiousic, uh, religious viewpoint. But it's, uh, uh, we talked about moral codes at the start. It's a code of ethics. It's mm. like you can sum it down to don't harm people. Yeah. <laughs> like that's really, that's really it. You know, enjoy life. You know, enjoy life to the fullest. Um, do everything that your heart desires, but notice if your if your conduct is harming other people, yeah, including yourself. Yeah, karma's karma's interesting when you look at it outside of being some ephemeral, woo-woo, spiritual, Eastern philosophical thing, and it's actually very pragmatic. There's a physics to the concept of karma. You know, there, I saw a Instagram reel of a guy's like he's got a, a chart, and there's like the there's for as you there's one side is fuck around the mm-hmm. other side is find out right right yeah yeah so that's karma right. that's a that's yeah. a beautiful teaching of karma if you're if your level of fuck around is like averages at like an 8 to a 9.5 each day you fuck around that much you're going to reciprocally find out around an 8 to a 9.5 you will and it's it's one like this is it is science yeah. the way that it works and and to to add to that and to add to that brilliant Buddhist uh, meme, yeah. which isn't Buddhist at all, yeah. it's that check in with yourself. Like when you do something, like you know, you hurt someone, does it feel good in your body, right? And often the answer is no, it doesn't feel good. But then we give the meaning to it, right? We're like, oh no, he deserved it. I remember that's the second arrow, right? Mm. Like, he deserved it, or like, no, I I I deserve this. And so. Um, if we really check in, we all have this intrinsic ability to be actual like loving people, like nurturing, kind people. We, we are all basically there. We are all basically born whole and complete and good, which is different to other you know, um, viewpoints you know, religiously. But in the Buddhist view is that we are born whole, complete, and much of our practice is just recognizing that. It's just remembering that. You know? And the Tibetan word for meditation is gom. And gom also translates as to remember. And when we practice meditation, we're uncovering all these layers of story, narrative, expectation, idea that really stops us seeing the perfection of ourselves and the perfection of the moment. If we're, this is an unnecessary tangent, but if we're born whole from a Buddhist lens, what's the point of going through 
this painful cycle of samsara, I think is a term for it, essentially like life to death and being in this confused wandering path. Mm. If you're inherently born whole as it is, what's the point of samsara? I, and samsara just being a fancy word for, for like the turmoils of life. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so samsara contains suffering at a high level, right? So samsara is essentially the, the cycles of birth, old age, sickness, and death over and over and over again until we become enlightened. This is, again, the Buddhist view. Um, enlightenment doesn't contain suffering. Enlightenment is that you are not no longer reborn. That's it. You become like an enlightened being. That's the end of it. And so you are born whole and complete on this earthly life, but you will still experience suffering. And so when you experience suffering, for many of us, and I, and I include myself here, even though I know like I'm whole and I'm complete, if... A relationship doesn't go bad like i'll go into like a deep sadness a deep perhaps even a depression i'll start to create stories in my head oh it's because i'm not this i'm not that i should have done this i should have done that and so there's suffering in those moments and so for many of us we go through our lives uh, and so i'll think about some of the greatest meditation teachers out there in the world you know the ones that are no longer here and the ones that i even the dalai lama you know, he still experiences suffering right he's uh, he's awakened he has a, a achieve certain levels of awakening, but he still suffers. Maybe when he passes, that'll be the end of his cycle of birth, old age, sickness, and death. But for many of us, we're going to experience this, but the remembrance of our wholeness just reduces the level of suffering that we'll experience. So instead of perhaps being depressed for months on end because a relationship ended, we'll suffer for like three weeks. And then we're like, you know what? It just wasn't meant to be, hmm. you know? And, and she's a, I wish her nothing but love. Instead of like, I hope she meets a guy with leprosy or some shit. Like whatever, yeah. right? Like it. That's again, that's like, my that's my move. Right, it used to be mine too. Yeah. Um, but it's like okay, these this is just humans coming together and things going apart, and it's okay. Yeah. You don't have to be. Uh, you don't have to be hate, hating anyone else. So that brings us seamless segue into the third noble truth, which is the suffering does have a. Uh, an end of sorts. It's, yes. not, it's not just all suffering and then you die. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's a beautiful kind of realization that the Buddha had uh, in which actually incidentally after the Buddha was awakened, his uh, followers or his friends, they saw, they saw him and they were like, I had something different in you. Like, what is it? And he initially didn't want to tell them like he achieved Nirvana. He awakened mm. because he was like, no one's going to believe me and no one's going to want to do the things that I, I did to get there. And, but seeing him, his friends were like, wow, there's like a clarity in your eyes. You look peaceful. There's like an energy. And when you meet an awakened person, that's usually how you know that they're awakened. There's a certain energy in their presence. Um, you know, with my teacher, for example, my very first teacher, I'd be meditating, eyes closed, and I would just feel this heat whenever he would come near me. It would just be this overwhelming heat. Uh, other times, I'd be sitting there looking at him. He'd ask me, you know, how are my relationship's going? And I would be like, yeah, it's going great, you know, full well knowing that it's falling apart. And he, he would look at me and it's like he's seeing into my soul. And I just <laughs> was stumbling over like, I should just tell him the truth. But no, he knows already. You know, it was just this weird, weird feeling. But anyway, uh, when the Buddha awakened, he was like, yeah, I, this is the eightfold path of um, practice that you can undertake in order to also awaken. And the Eightfold Path is probably time, it's probably a podcast for another 
for another time because it's so uh, in-depth and in detail and includes a lot of things that sit outside of the world of secular mindfulness. I'm going to well. try to poke at it if you're willing to allow me to attempt. We can, yeah, we can, we can try. Yeah. For sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, so his, his realization was, um, yeah, there is a way to actually train the mind and heart. And I actually really love that. It's not a fact of you have to, you know, prostrate or pray or forgive. It's like here you can train yourself to do it. Mm. And as a man who used to, you know, play sports and stuff like that, I was like, yes, I can train. (laughs) And this is really good. Like it's a systematic approach of training the mind to awaken. And that for me was really appealing. Yeah, I think it's interesting to look at it. I've heard the descriptions of the Eightfold Path and and the Noble Truths and all that as uh, more like a physician um, diagnosing a condition and then having a treatment for the condition. And And I think that in the culture that, you know, Western culture, which is easy to poo-poo in Western culture. Western culture is a lot of good stuff too. You know, technologically, Western culture is pretty rad. Mm -hmm. Um, From a pragmatic perspective, Western culture kills it. it, But that's just one side of the coin, you know, and then the other side of the coin, kind of the invisible or the non-quantifiable aspects, those are the parts that we've transitioned over, you know, I don't know, maybe since like Roman days, it seems like there's been a, a pretty significant transition towards what can we hold what can we quantify how can we compete who is winner who's what's the hierarchies and now if you grow up into that that culture and you're indoctrinated into that it would be very easy to believe that that is all that there is and then you have to listen to random podcasts like this or find random esoteric books or Mm. go to india or something in order to see that oh what i was inculcated by in fact isn't normal it's just one version of of life and then when you look at statistically speaking what that that version of life is producing there's a lot of a lot of things there's a lot of obesity there's a lot of anxiety there's a lot of depression there's a lot of self-harm there's a lot of addiction to a, a whole pharmacopoeia of pharmaceutical drugs that have tons of different consequences there's also a lot of love and light and fun and dance and art and all that but statistically speaking, it seems as though if a person exclusively exists in that quantifiable space and kind of divorces ourselves from this invisible aspect and like the, you know, like the visceral kind of qualitative parts, it seems like an uncomfortable place to, to live. You know, mm. I don't know that I have a question. No, it's a, it's a, you actually worded it really beautifully, um, very articulately. I think what we're at, the, the juncture we're at in our lives is this beautiful merging of Eastern thought and wisdom and Western technology and science. And together, it's a very powerful combination. Yeah. It's really why, you know, me, I can sit here and I can talk about the benefits of mindfulness on, from a neuroscientific perspective and somatic perspective and then talk about the implications of that on a spiritual perspective. And none of these are right, none of these are wrong. These are just philosophies and science, you know. And... We sometimes think that, you know, the Eastern thought isn't a science, but, you know, really for like more than 5,000 years, these were sciences. Like, you know, the, the Ayurveda was a science of, of food as medicine for a long, long period of time. Um, you know, we had the, the Kabbalah teaching us things. There's so many different um, philosophical spiritual um, sciences that are in existence that we tend to think there's a difference. 
know, Western science and like Eastern philosophy. But really, there's they're they're all sciences that yeah. we view differently. I think we're at this point where we can see, okay, this me sitting here self-reflecting or me sitting here focusing on my breath. Uh, I get this wisdom, this insight, but also that actually regulates my nervous system. It brings me into a parasympathetic state. And when I'm in this parasympathetic state, I'm more cognizant, I'm more aware, I'm more productive, perform better. And so for some people, like you're referring to, that is the gateway. That's the gateway for them to be like, oh, okay, cool. Like this, I could use more focus. I could sleep better, cool. Um, And then over time, it's like this journey. It's this continuum that you're like, okay, you practice this for long enough. You start to have experiences, and it's experiences that you can't actually quantify or even qualify for that matter, right? You're like, oh, wow. Like I had this, I mean, my first experience was uh, in a Vipassana. You know, the Vipassana is a 10-day silent meditation retreat. Um, deep, you know, I think 15, no, uh, 11 to 12 hours of meditation a day. Deep concentration practices. And to a point where you feel this sense of absorption with your point of focus, Right. And then I remember I was walking back to my my room one day and I was sitting, I just sat down and I was looking at these flowers and there was just this feeling that just came over me. I'm like, wow, like there isn't a separation. I am part of this like nature. And the only other time I've had experiences like that has been psychedelics, right? And again, you can't explain some of these. um, You can't explain some of these things. But you start to then get flavors of it, tastes of it. And then that's why people that, you know, are first drawn to these practices for, you know, the, the scientific reasons start to stay with it because there are other areas of their uh, mind or heart that become awakened. Yeah. And that becomes a really exciting journey for them. I want to take a moment and share about something that has absolutely knocked my socks off and I was quite skeptical about in the beginning that is utilizing exogenous ketones as a fantastic source of fuel as mental clarity and it also reduces appetite which is kind of an interesting side effect as well Um, i've done a whole podcast episode all about the benefits of it i really love using it before a podcast episode i just drank a bottle before reading this ad actually and it's it does an interesting thing It induces that similar sensation that you'd have after doing an extended fast and your body transitioning over into ketosis. And uh, it's like a almost euphoric, upbeat, energetic, cognitively clear sensation. It's highly recommended. I would would just just give it a try. Uh, If you don't absolutely love it, no worries, you can get your money back. But I think it's one of those things just it's supportive to have in your toolkit. Uh, So the company's called HVMN. Uh, the drink is called Ketone IQ. I uh, recorded a whole podcast with the founder of the company and got into the deep details of what the heck is going on with this. And I think you guys are going to dig it. So go to hvmn.com and then at checkout, type in the code align 20 and you will save 20% off on your purchase. That's hvmn.com. And then at checkout, type in A L I G N 20 and you will receive. 20% off your purchase. Yeah, in Western culture, I talk about Western culture a lot because it's all I really know about. Um, I feel as though we are not really equipped with the tools to solve the problems of... Um, if if there is an, an action-oriented solution, we do very... We're really good. Mm. But 
from like a Vipassana perspective, you know, the, the, the lens would be if you just sit with yourself, these some samskaras, mm. these impressions, these deeply held knots that manifested as maybe when you were a baby or maybe, you know, when, when your mom was a baby or the stress of when you were in utero or, you know, any of that. Who knows where they come from? It doesn't matter. Um, but if you are patient enough to be able to sit with yourself, then these you have this deep, intrinsic, internal healing mechanism that's more powerful than most of the medications and techno- mm. technologies that we, you know, we, we see and we hold in our hands. But that's a, that's a big pill to swallow, be, being yeah. willing to believe that, have the trust and the surrender that there could be a solution or some form of salvation through actually doing the opposite of what I've you know, been attempting to do and work so hard to do all my life, which is like, I will do it. Mm. I will get it done. Mm. But to be able to say, okay, I'm going to just, just, I'm going to try and trust for some amount of time that I'm going to do the opposite or be the opposite of what I've been kind of bred and groomed to be yeah. for my whole entire life. That's a mind fuck. Yeah, like it really is. And it's also, you have to have a lot of patience for that. Right, that's the other thing. Like you have to have a lot of patience in a vipassana, for example, to unwind these knots. And for everyone listening, when we talk about knots, these are you know deep impressions of like emotional wounding or trauma or experience that get in the way of us like flourishing as as humans. And in order to sit there, as I'm sure you've done, like for a long period of time, it takes a lot of patience. And in our modern culture, we are addicted to speed. Right. If we want to heal ourselves, we don't want to wait years to do it or months or weeks. If we can take a pill to do it, then that's amazing. You know, If we can drink a certain smoothie every day, then that's great. And so we want to, we want to get to the end point as quick as possible. And it's kind of antithetic to a lot of the, the Eastern philosophies, which um, really are more slow burns. They're, they're, they require patience and they require compassion. And they require this level of surrender, which are all words that you know a lot of us don't use on an everyday basis when it comes to how we move through the world, right? Mm. It's as you said, you're just going to get it done. Like it doesn't matter how you're feeling, you're just going to get it done, um, and get it done quickly. And I was the same. You know, I was I was playing sport at a very high level in Australia before I kind of came into this sort of work, and it was all around getting from A to B as quickly as possible. And what kind of sport? Uh, cricket, actually. Mm, yeah. Cricket. I just know cricket from uh, Ninja Turtles. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's a strong, strong, strong scene. In the beginning, there's a, I don't remember the details of it, but guy's holding a cricket thing. I think he uses it as a weapon. Right. Yeah. That's my experience with cricket. For Americans that aren't familiar with, with cricket, it's like a mixture between baseball and softball, mm. I want to say. But then... It's like huge. It's like one of the biggest sports outside of football, um, mm. outside of America. Yeah. Um, all right. So that brings us into the, and again, I appreciate you following this pre-structured, pre-ordained path that I've created, which is very rare on this this uh, platform to do that. But I genuinely, I think it'd be interesting to have this as like a, just a, an insight into some of the, the principles of Buddhism, mm-hmm. which is something we've never done. Um, but so the, the fourth of the noble truths is that there is a there's a recipe. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's like a training schedule, <laughs> almost, yeah. right? It's like a 
think of, and I think you brought it up before that the Buddha was known as like the world's first psychologist mm. because here he was looking at the problem, which is the mind. He was looking at, okay, what are the symptoms of of what, he, what they're experiencing, which is suffering, clinging, blah, blah, blah. And then here is the prescription. Now, here is what you need to go and follow in order to um, eradicate yourself from the majority of your suffering. And he outlined a, a path, which is known as the Eightfold Path. Um, and the Eightfold Path contra- contains three sections. Uh, you're going to test my memory around... Oh, I've got them all written out here. Each eight, yeah. eight of them are, but yeah. they're essentially... Okay, once you read them out, I'll, I'll say I'll tell you how they're actually broken. We'll just start at the top. I don't know if there's a, there probably is a particular order, but the top that I have written down is right view or right understanding, insight into the true nature of reality. Okay, what is what is my experience of reality? In order to do that, we need to, to see reality as reality. And so it's okay. There contains three elements to it. There's dukkha, there's suffering, there's... Rhymes with, rhymes with dookie. Right, <laughs> with with an A on it. <laughs> Got this dookie in my life. There's uh, a Nietzsche. A Nietzsche is impermanence. Right. That everything that is born will eventually die. Or another way of saying it is that everything changes. A Nietzsche is a good one. And each is like, yeah, we could spend a whole podcast like diving on that one. I love that one, actually. Yeah. And then there's anatta. Anatta is, uh, it's translated as not self. Mm. So this uh, thing that we call me or Manaj, the meditation teacher, is inherently unstable. It's not a fixed entity. It's something that is decomposing. It's something that is getting old. It's something that has the nature to to die and to pass away. And then through meditation practice, we realize that this uh, this isn't us. There is like a an, an essence or a consciousness that is deeper than the physical body, hmm. right? And so um, the, the view is essentially recognizing that in our experience. Yeah. And then I think maybe in your book, your book is called Still Together? Still Together, yeah. Yeah, I listened to it on, on Audible um, in preparation for this, one of the, the things in there, I think I might have heard this someplace else, but I think in there you talk about um, just the the concept of our interdependence with everything. And yeah, I mean the interdependence of things is actually just a really beautiful reflection for us to, to consider: is that nothing that we own or create is independently ours, including like our lives yeah, including us we came together because of two people that came together right and there are a million different things that had to go right at that moment for us to to come into existence this studio that we're in is built by countless people these mics that we're speaking into is built with countless people the food that we eat generally will have been harvested from someone else so interdependence means we are in relationship elements and elements is exactly right. It's not just people. No. You know, so we can we can feel alone with the belief that we are isolated, like skin bodies, and then it's like, oh no, we're this this technology and all this has come from, you know, years, millennia of of human evolution and all that. And then within that, it's like, okay, cool, that's a little less lonely. But now, what about your relationship to the sky and to water and the oceans and to land and dirt and the bugs? Mm. And I think the more that we can expand ourselves, our, 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 our sense of self into being more interconnected, my suspicion is that's some level of a, a solution of sorts to uh, ease this sensation of isolation, loneliness, and, and suffering. One, one of them, one of the many, but I feel like there's an angle there. No, yeah, I'm absolutely. And, and division. 
actually as well right and we look at the world today like it feels very divided you know between different political parties or different points of view and social issues and um you know purely ethnicity like there's a sense of division but if for a moment we stop and we're like okay look <laughs> i'm going to be born i'm going to die at one point and so is the person in front of me they'll have the exact same experience right they probably have parents that love them I probably have parents that love them. They probably have family and friends that admire them and depend on their presence and I have the exact same thing. They'll probably love, I'll probably love. They'll probably go through hard times, same. And so we start to then break down all the things that divide us and we see there's actually a lot of similarities there, right? Your level of uh suffering might be different when it comes to relationships than mine or my level of suffering when it comes to um you know loss might be different to yours there are little you know nuances but on a much bigger level like we're very very similar what actually divides us is the meaning we give to our experience that we are so different i think the nastiest part is when we get into a dick measuring measuring contest around our level of suffering right absolutely and that's it's hard to actually qualify that because it's tough yeah i mean if i go if we both go through breakups but for me it's like oh my breakup actually just ruined me for three years and you were like shit happens you know you move on um it doesn't discount like the level of suffering it doesn't discount the experience the first hour of suffering but yeah. it discounts the second hour why do you i know that i've heard you talk about racism racism and on all of those things and blm and all of that i'm sure that was very impactful in your experience why do you think it is that um the demographic of people that seem to be like winning or have it the easiest, like middle-aged white men are, have the highest incidence of suicide. Hmm. I mean, I think there's a lot of causes and conditions. I don't think it's, um, maybe there could be a population thing as well. Maybe there's more middle-aged white men. It could be, it, it could be, but then it depends also which, you know, if you talk about America or Australia or globally. Yeah. Um, I don't know a lot about this topic, by the way, but it's just something, a curiosity that I have of like, how do we quantify this suffering? Who holds the most? Like, cause there has been a recent, you know, I think upsurge of really like, okay, who's got the suffering? How much, how much suffering do we have? How do we repay that? How do we equalize this? To be honest, I wouldn't think it's a race thing at all. I think like men are just suffering in general mm. around the world. And I did a lot of work in Australia before I came here you know, a few years ago. And um, yeah, I mean, male suicide was, I think, the second biggest killer of, of men, you know, under the age of 30 or something like that. There was some, some ridiculous stat like that. And then also we're experiencing loneliness and, and a whole host of other mental conditions. Um, I don't think that's necessarily pertained to race, although if you look at it from a more minute um, perspective, I know in uh, indigenous populations, for example, they're disproportionately affected. In Australia, I'm not sure what it's like here in, in the US, than um, other, other demographics. So there are causes and conditions. You know, Some of them are access, things include access to clean water and education. But then there are things that we all suffer from which is across all races, is things like uh, a sense of disconnection, right? We feel lonely, like we don't have um, a, a meaning that we, a lot of us don't have a meaning that we give to our lives. With the, with the reduction in, in terms of religious uh, 
popularity these days because more and more people are you know becoming more atheistic and uh, our sense of meaning and community is dwindling with that as well you know so these are some of the causes and conditions but there's also we're living stressful fucking lives like we're more activated in our nervous system than ever before um we're connected to our phone 24 7 you know 365 days and so stress levels are increasing the demands of modern life are increasing we're sleeping less some of us are eating worse and we're lonelier so all of these things are affecting people and um i don't yeah, I don't have the data on why it's affecting men more than more than women. Um, but what can sometimes I think be kind of like a, like the um, I don't know investigating our our suffering and and really like leaning into wow I've had a hard life. This is you know essentially it's just like I am. Here's all the reasons that I I've been a victim. I've been victimized. And here's all the reasons that I feel, um, you know, just life is, life is hard. And, and, and that's, there's nothing wrong with any perception or any exploration. But I, I have a, a feeling that it's, in a sense, it's almost like a sowing of seeds in a way, or it can be. And if you choose to find all of the reasons that life is hard, you will never run out of reasons that life is hard. And then you will confirm that bias. And then you start to become kind of like this, this, this like, it, you start to pull those, you become an attractor. Yeah. And you're like, aha, see, there it is. There it is again. Yeah. And then there's some people that's like, yes, like for sure, I life has been hard and here we are. Mm. And what can I do with this moment? Yeah. You know, and, and how is life beautiful? Yeah. How am I fucking just lucky to have a diaphragm? Yeah. You know, and a pelvic floor that functions. I don't right. pee my pants. Like, right. holy shit. Yeah. yeah. You know, and then you'll start to find more reasons. Like, yeah, life is pretty cool. Yeah. Absolutely. And so, like, the, the, understanding, that, the understanding that life contains suffering doesn't mean that we coddle ourselves and we dwell on our suffering. It's actually depersonalizing the experience. We're like, oh, I'm not special because I've gone through this. Like, yeah, like I've gone through some shitty times, but I'm not special. Like I'm, I'm one of the rest of humanity, which will all you know, go through suffering. And again, my level of suffering could be very different to someone in a war-torn country going through suffering. And it could be someone very different to living in a mansion in Beverly Hills. But And someone in that war-torn country might be way happier than the gal or, or fella. And they usually and are, they is right? Uh, which is a weird thing. Um, well, yeah. again, I don't really know what I'm talking about with that. But I've read books like Paradise Made in Hell and such and, and, and listened to lots of podcasts and, you know, Victor Frankl and... I mean, I, I come from... I was born in Sri Lanka and it's, you know, for all intents and purposes, a third world country. And I'm always, whenever I'm in the villages, just see people happy and smiling and playing mm. together. No TVs, no shoes, just running around. And there's a certain level of happiness. But I'm sure they wish that they had what, you know, we do. And some of us wish we had what they do, which right. is simplicity which, in life. Right. Um, which gets into the second, the second uh, truth. Yeah. Yeah, it's that comparison and expectation. And, and wanting things to be different. Intention. The unselfish desire to realize enlightenment. You have any thoughts on, on that? You can, you can also just say, yeah, that's cool. Let's go to the next one. Yeah. No, I mean, like, the, the, 
the skinny on that is uh, intention is powerful, right? Um, I think we, when we look at karma, for example, we think that, oh, I shouldn't ever do anything bad. Um, so then you walk around like, oh, I shouldn't hit a, a, a fly that's on my face because, you know, it's killing and I'm going to be going to hell or I'm going to be born a fly. All this sorts of shit can go through your mind. But, you know, when we bring intentionality to our experience, one of the simplest intentions is like, I don't want to harm anyone. And so may my actions be for the benefit of all beings. We're in a, an audio-based pod, well, video as well, but we're in a podcast. This is relevant. Uh, using speech compassionately is what I have written down. Yeah, about this that. is really hard, especially if you're in a relationship. <laughs> it's hard because, like, it's... Yeah, you want to win. Because, well, I mean, you want you want to be right, yeah. usually, right? Yeah. And so, uh, you know, if you're, if you're a, a, a businessman, if you're uh, an employer, like, there are things you say sometimes that will hurt people, but... Is the intention in which I'm saying this to hurt them? That's where you start to see the, the eight, eightfold path start to blend in of itself. Mm. Can I say things without harming someone? Even though like compassionately, I might need to you know, let go of someone as yeah. an example. But the intention I'm bringing to it is compassion. It's kindness. It's not lies. You know, speech can also be full of lies. And that's going to, to fuck shit up as well. So can I speak in a way where there's no harm and there's compassion? That's are are you in a relationship? I am with a how, how you had a kid when you were nineteen. I did. That's crazy. Your your kid is about as old as me, and you're also about as old as me. <laughs> I had that realization the other day while I was on my bike. Was I'm like I'm like Jesus. Yeah. What an interesting life. Yeah. Yeah. How did that go? It was um a wonderful. <laughs> it was a wonderful experience and fucking hard. I am, you know, anyone that I was a teenager when when I had you know my daughter Tay. And she has been one of my greatest teachers. Um, and it's been really the, the catalyst for my spiritual practice. Because, you know, I realized up until I had her that I was living a very selfish life. I was causing a lot of harm to myself and other people, my parents especially. And then here was someone that really relied on me, that, you know, I was their world. And uh, I took that very seriously. And it was at that, you know, juncture. It wasn't actually then that I became a meditation practitioner. It was actually about 10 years later. But um, yeah, she was the catalyst for me inquiring about a deeper relationship with life. And not just being as selfish as I was. Yeah, the reason I asked, how long you been in with your partner? Are you, you're, is it a, a female, I presume? It is, yeah. Yeah? How long you been together? Uh, we've been on and off, but like we're, we're, we're back now and it's been about four months. Mm. Oh, you just started dating in the last four months? Uh, as a new person? It's the same person. We were, we were together for three years mm. and then we separated for about uh, 14 months and yeah. then we got back together. All right. The reason I ask is something that I, I find within relationship with anyone, but particularly in like, a, what do you call that? Like a marital, um, intimate relation. That's the word I'm looking for. Within an intimate relationship, I feel like that really, the buttons get pressed yeah. a lot more different than like your bros. Yeah. You know, or just someone you're dating for a little bit. Yeah. And and within that, it can become very challenging to intentionally replace my my purview, my mind into a place of compassion and into a place of deeper listening, not with the intention to be right or not with the, you know, having any, any other baggage attached to my listening other than really, truly trying 
my damnedest to place myself into that person's experience. Yeah. And not just that person's experience in this moment, but that person's experience as a little girl, yeah, you as know, a as a teenager and as a, as, as a business person and as a friend and as a, you know, all of those things. And one of the things that I've found to be helpful in general, especially with like political people as well, anybody that you, you kind of, you know, find annoying, you don't like, is to look at them as being like a child wearing an adult costume. And that's not my idea. Uh, but that I find to be very, a, a very powerful tool to bring us back into like, oh, okay, like it's okay. Yeah. You know, like I mean, it's, it's, a, it's really beautiful you said that because essentially all you have to remember as you look at someone is that this person's eventually going to get sick, yeah. old, and die. Yeah. And at that moment, there is like, for me personally anyway, no matter who I'm arguing with or how different our views on world, worldly things are, if I look at this person, I'm like, this person you know, has people that care about them. This person cares about other people. This person's going to die and get sick. And it automatically shifts me into a state of like, what am I actually just getting so worked up with? You know? yeah. In relationships, the question I ask myself is, do I want to be right or do I want to be at peace? What do you think is going with Jeffrey Dahmer? <laughs> I don't know, but like I started to watch that and I was like, yo, this is way too much for me to watch at night. I can't. I can't. Yeah, he's eating people. He was like eating people, and I'm like, I can't be having dreams like this. You think he needs some meditation, needs some yoga, eightfold path? Yeah, I think his next life, he's gonna come back as as someone pretty fucked up, maybe like a a rat or something. No disrespect rats to rats. Rats are probably fine. They're probably smart, aren't they? Oh yeah. Yeah, they're really smart. I heard. They're robust. Um, but you know, so that if we wanted to get into it, like. Our, our actions have repercussions, as we were talking about before, and there are different realms that we can be born into. And um, this is going way off track, but one of the realms, and this is very religious and Buddhist, and it's usually in, in certain schools of Buddhism, like the Tibetan system and things like that. Um, you can be born into what's called the hell realm, which is a realm in which you are just suffering. Your whole life is suffering, suffering, suffering. It's not a, like a heaven and a hell situation where you're, everything's red and there's a, a devil and things like that. It's more like your life will just contain so much suffering because of what you caused in, in previous lives. So maybe that's a potential destination for our, for our boy. Mm. What would you, if you were his meditation coach, what would you do with Big D? Yeah, I don't know if I would feel safe. I would definitely do Zoom calls. First of all, I wouldn't do in-person meditation sessions. Um, but I think he is maybe someone that needs not just meditation, but perhaps some therapy as well. What do you think about psychedelic? What do you think about maybe I, I, Ibogaine or something for old Dahmer, ayahuasca? Oh, yeah. I think that would be a very dark period, a very <sighs> dark experience. But he should do it. We should throw everything at Is he alive still? I think he died. I think he, he died, yeah. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. You ever watch serial killers on the YouTubes? Uh, I'm not really into that sort of stuff. Really? Yeah. I'm into it. I can tell. I can yeah. <laughs> I can tell the energy just lifted when we started talking about serial killers. Uh, that's great. I'm I'm not it's not really my thing. What other weird shit are you into? I mean, how weird are we talking? <laughs> Whatever. Stuff that you're like, "Oh, that's that's kind of, you know, Aaron's into serial killers." You know? Serial killers, yeah. Um, kind of in the, those, those, those categories. I mean, the weirdest shit that I like to explore is my own mind, and that's weird as hell. Mm. You know, and um, what kind of stuff has surprised you in there? 
what kind of stuff? So we just, I just did a silent meditation retreat. I led one last weekend, mm. actually the weekend just before coming here. And, um, you know, I just noticed all the stories that I make up about people, you know, in, in the context of a retreat, because mm. you don't speak to people for 48 hours, right? right? And, you know, you're waiting in line to, you know, serve your food. And if someone's serving twice the much, twice as much as you, your mind is like, this guy's an absolute jerk. I bet he just does this in his whole life and just doesn't care about anyone else. And, and then you realize, what the fuck? Like your mind is bananas. And typically, you're the asshole. Typically, like it's it's just always doing dumb shit. When there's if you're, if you're a, like a, like a consummate critic, you know you're just continuing in that place. Like typically, you're probably the problem. Yeah, I mean generally, yes. Your own mind. It's an is interesting. The cause of it's suffering. an interesting. It's an interesting. There's I had a there's um someone. It was a yoga teacher actually. You know, at the end of yoga classes, they'll like tell you spiritual stuff or whatever typically i'm like okay you know um but there was one thing that a gal said a while back that i thought was pretty cool she said never waste a trigger mm. uh, that was an interesting thing it's like if, if there's something that ruffles your feathers yeah there's probably something worth investigating in there yeah. and it's a beautiful way to instead of it being just something to have another resistance or another avoidant pattern something that's actually like become curious and you know enamored by those things that make you go like Ugh! And say like, aha, like there's my there's my education. I'm spending all this money on fucking tuition. Yeah. You're like, here's the education. Yeah. And for anyone that has an aversion to anything remotely spiritual, think of curiosity as being a spiritual practice. Because it really is. Mm -hmm. It's being like really curious around, ooh, what is there anything beyond this? Like what is it that I feel? And what is it that's triggering me? And why am I having this reaction? And who am I actually angry with? And what does it connect to? And that for me it was really the the entry point into all this work like i i went i moved to australia when i was a child and you know for like 20 years really lost connection with buddhism and it wasn't until you know i went through like addiction issues and i went through like a lot of mental suffering that i found my way back to this practice but it was really just the curiosity and the curiosity for me was there has to be something more than having all of like I had a very successful job in marketing and advertising and I was like there has to be something more than than this and that was the catalyst what were you addicted to uh prescription medication which ones uh Ritalin Xanax mm, Xanny um, bars they were good in high school yeah yeah um you know I, I got it for because I was diagnosed with ADHD and then I developed an insomnia a really bad case of insomnia and then after a while you just needed it to function and that was kind of the the way i was operating i just needed it to function and then it became um problematic and it affected a lot of people outside of me mm. all right thank you for sharing all that you're welcome appreciate that we're on to right action we're halfway through these these mofos it's, in, it's interesting how things go in eights as well there's like the eight limbs of yoga yeah, the buddha well. was like so organized like it was always making lists and i love that because i'm so dysfunctional yeah <laughs> do you believe that i'm i am so dysfunctional no i i just know i'm not very organized and that's just the truth mm. <laughs> and so lists really help me it, what do you think of the power of of words and casting spells and such uh casting spells yeah well that's like yes yeah, that's like a clever because like you're spelling a word casting a spell it's just some something i've heard in like new age circles yeah i think well i'm not too familiar with new age circles but like i think like language has a power in i think that's really what you're alluding yeah. to and i think the way we articulate things 
um, and how we articulate them affects people at different times. Like someone could be listening to this podcast and they're like, yeah, 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 this meditation teacher saying the same shit. But then the one day you go to a class and at the end someone's like, you know, never waste the trigger mm -hmm. and it just lands, mm -hmm. you know? So there is, yeah, there probably is some sort of magic to that. I'm gonna take a moment and share something I have found to be very supportive for my digestive health that is supplementing with something called masszymes from Bioptimizers. As you age, your body actually starts to produce fewer enzymes, which are proteins responsible for digesting food. Fewer enzymes means more difficulty digesting food. This is especially true if you cook your food because cooking kills enzymes. This is why you may have digestion problems even after a healthy meal. Your body may just not have enough enzymes to get the job done. This is where supplementing with a high quality enzyme supplement can be a huge help. I am a truly a massive fan of Masszymes. I actually feel like an energetic pick-me-up after taking it, which is interesting and, and unexpected. Uh, so it is a best-in-class supplement loaded with full-spectrum enzymes for digesting proteins, starches, sugars, fibers, and fats. Taking Masszymes daily helps top off your enzyme levels and replace the enzymes your body is no longer producing, which means you'll be able to eat all sorts of delicious foods and digest them quickly and effortlessly. One of the benefits of taking Masszymes is a reduction in bloating, so you might notice a flatter belly after eating, which is lovely. Uh, also, if you experience leaky gut, Masszymes could reduce gut irritation and help you absorb nutrients more effectively. Uh, I am a massive fan of this stuff. I think you guys will enjoy it, and you can get yourself a 10% discount you can give it a try if you do not absolutely love it you don't not notice an improvement in your digestion a reduction in bloating an increase in energy get your money back they have a one-year money-back guarantee uh and you can go to masszymes.com align to get started so it's m-a-s-s-z-y-m-e-s.com slash align and you can use align 10 at checkout for a 10 percent discount on any product from buy optimizers one year money back guarantee it is worth a shot to improve your digestion and uh, I think you guys enjoy it. So jump over to masszymes.com slash align. All right, so using ethical conduct to manifest compassion. And again, once again, you don't need to go deep into any of these. I mean, that, that's like pretty self-explanatory. It's just like you, you understand how things work and the actions you take are just actions that are wholesome, actions yeah. that don't harm. Right livelihood, make a living through ethical and non-harmful means. I think something else that's relevant in here and something I've heard you say i think in your in your book as well um is that when if we're engaging in a career that's based around something that we're actually we actually believe in we're actually passionate in suddenly we become more productive mm. you know so productivity it, you could be a person that's like you're kind of a misfit for what are your passions what are your innate desires and you know what are you, the things that you're inherently just naturally good at yeah like that's your path yeah you know, if you place someone in that scenario where they're actually in like right action, right career, you know, right yeah. language, all of that, compared to someone that there's, there's more friction within that, yeah. the person that has the ease is going to crush every time. Absolutely. And, and this specific um, part of the, the path is also talking about um, choosing a livelihood that is ethical. And again, ethics is like a whole different conversation but something i always orientate towards which is something that isn't going to harm like i'm not going to be an arms dealer for example because <laughs> that isn't perhaps not as ethical according to my moral code maybe not for someone else and that's fine you know everyone has to ascertain what what's ethical for them yeah but until um, you until you're in a position where you're protecting the quote-unquote good guy 
Right. You know, and it's like, well, my family is about to be attacked and they need some arms. Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, this is this is where ethics are, are flexible, right? And having a, a binary sort of view on, on what's moral and, and what's immoral just doesn't serve anyone. And, you know, in the right context, I will protect my family no matter what. You know, someone's intruding my house and I have, I've, Felt like I'm cultivating all of these things. If I was enlightened, and I've heard of you know, and stories of um, monks laying down themselves so a tiger can eat because it looked hungry and stuff like that. Like it's a whole level of of, of yeah. And again, I don't know how true some of these stories are, but um, yeah, I think for me, I think some morals is something for us to investigate. And it's just like everything, even the Eightfold Path. The Buddha said, don't listen to anything, even if I have said it, unless it resonates with your own heart. Mm. And I love that because then it doesn't become this, like, do this and you will be this. It's like, hey, explore this. Does it feel right for you? If not, then... I think it gets gets into trusting your body as well, which is another thing that within this modern, you know, whatever modern is, like now culture, the idea of trust my body, like yes. what the hell do you mean by that? You know, but but you, your body speaks, you know, like your yeah. words in your mind say a lot of things. Yeah, in your gut, it says a lot. But the, the problem though there is a lot of us don't have a good relationship with our body. Mm. And meaning that we are so disconnected from our body that we live, a lot of us, primarily in the mind. Right. An example is this. You wake up in the morning. As soon as you wake up, many of us, and again, me often, <laughs> it's not like, oh, how do I feel? Hmm. Let me wake up slowly. Let me maybe just stay in a little bit. You know, maybe go for a walk. It's usually like, whoop, alarm, schedule. What are, who are all my meetings? Can I get a workout in? Let's have some coffee. Yeah. Um, let's get out in the sun. Let's do it. And you're already, boof, you're, you've left the body and how the body's feeling, which is more feeling-based, feeling tone-based, and you've moved into the cognition. And so the relationship with the body has to almost be rebuilt. We have to like find moments where we're in our body. An example is when we're in a cold plunge, right? Cold plunge is an example of how we are in our body in that moment, especially when we come out. We might be the first minute as soon as we go in, we're like, <laughs> like just freezing. But then there is a period of time where we're just, we're in it, right? We're in it, we're in it. And then you come out of that cold plunge, you feel yourself completely just drop, you know? And having a good relationship with our intuition and our body for a lot of us takes work because we tend to be very disconnected. And so, you know, practices like mindfulness, somatic mindfulness, yoga, a dance, they bring us back into into the body, into the realm of feeling and emotion. Again, thank you for letting me go through all of these in such a didactic manner. This is untypical of this podcast, but I'm happy to have it. Um, all right, right effort is the fifth of this eightfold path, cultivating wholesome qualities and releasing unwholesome qualities. Want to say anything about that? This just means it takes work <laughs> mm. and you, you got to show up. And you, and you mentioned it before. It's like, hey, training the mind to be kind and present and aware takes work. Yeah. And so right effort is just the effort you put in. Yeah. Right mindfulness, whole body and mind awareness. Yeah. Again, that's self-explanatory. It's, it's cultivating mindfulness yeah. in all actions, not just when we sit, but in, in life. Right concentrations, meditation, or some other dedicated concentrated practice. Yeah, again, self-explanatory. Um, a concentrated mind is a mind that is aware. And so uh, being able to hold our attention on one thing for a period of time just builds the foundation for so many other things, including mindfulness, including effort, all of that.
So now we have a recipe. Uh, now it comes into another um, topic that's filled with all sorts of different directions to go and confusion and, and, and such, but it's just the concept of meditation. What, what is meditation? Where does a person, and I think a, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably have a good sense of what meditation is, but um, what are some of maybe like the misconceptions? What, what are ways to alleviate some of the, maybe the avoidant patterns that a person might have around meditation? Does meditation have to be sitting still to, you know, and paying attention to your breath on a Panasati or is there's like, how do we, how do we start? How do we make it more seamless and less effortful? Yeah. I mean, there is a little bit of effort. So, um, sorry. <laughs> That's the first part. Uh, the second part is that to really untangle mindfulness and meditation mm. because we can be mindful in the course of our day. Like right now you and I ha are having a very mindful experience where for me anyway, I'm not thinking about breakfast which i'm going to have as soon as i leave here or the day ahead i'm here i'm engaged with you my body's here i'm feeling what i'm feeling and the mind isn't wandering so that's a mindful experience right there uh you could also have a mindful experience when you're running and you're not you don't have your headphones on but you're feeling your feet hit the pavement you're feeling the sweat you're feeling everything happening in the body and we also have mindful moments when we're in flow you know whether we're working and all the distractions just drop away we're in these flow states they're mindful moments. And then we have meditation, which is a more concentrated form of mindfulness, especially if you're doing a mindfulness meditation practice, which is you're paying attention to your physical sensations or you're paying attention to your breath or you're paying attention to like a specific word as a, an anchor for your mind, right? And so that's what we do when we practice meditation. We anchor our mind on an object. Anytime the mind wanders away from that object, we come back, we bring it back, we bring it back. And this coming back is like going to the gym and doing bicep curls, but we're doing these bicep curls for the brain. The more we do it, the more mindful experiences we actually have. And so it doesn't matter when we're doing concentration practice, for example, that our minds wander away a million times. Every time we come back, it's like a bicep curl. Yeah. And so my mind wanders all the time in meditation. After 15 years of very dedicated practice, it still wanders away. But what's changed over the years is the relationship to it. I'm less likely to berate myself. I can see the story starting to form as soon as my mind wanders away. I can see where my mind wanders off to. And for me, it's usually some experience in the future. Oh, I can't wait to do this. This is a great idea. I should take the business here. I should do this. I should do that. And so you begin to notice, ah, oh, the nature of your mind, for me, is to always be in the future, right? And it's always very... Um, self or not always very selfish it's like what i can achieve what i can do what i can create what i can gather and so meditation then doesn't just become this little activity that you bookend your day with it becomes a way where you get to really see your mind in action and then outside of that so you do your five ten minutes a day and you're walking through life you have a thought because you're self-aware and you can see that thought already has that same flavor Oh, what is it that I can achieve? What is it that I can get? What is it that I can do? Blah, 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 blah. And then instead of acting on those thoughts, as Viktor Frankl says, you know, uh, there's a, a stimulus and there's a response. And that gap between stimulus and response is mindfulness, right? And so then you get to choose what action you take. And you will have two choices. One action can lead you towards more suffering. One action can lead you towards happiness. When you have the choice when you have that space between stimulus and response, you tend to choose 
the actions that lead to more and more happiness and less often the ones that lead to suffering. And then you fall into this cycle of doing things, choosing things, people, experiences that lead you in a direction where you feel better and away from things that are harmful. I think for myself and probably a lot of people, whether they're aware of it or not, they're addicted to a certain level of bondage. And and within that, you have the 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 stimulus and then the response and then the choice to choose something that creates more equanimity and balance and all of that. But I think a lot of people like the, the pain, hmm. you know, and like the, the catastrophization and like the, the, the sabotaging of the relationships. And, you know, I don't think they're, they're like, you know, capital S self probably like likes it, but there's something about the, the small S self that has, has been, maybe programmed in a sense to continue mm. perpetuating pain, turmoil, bondage and things of the sort. Because it's familiar, mm. right? It's familiar and there's safety in what's familiar. What's perhaps unfamiliar is, is a life where there isn't struggle. Right. Could or you it, trust that? Can you trust that? Right. And that's where it's, you're in for a lot of us, we're in unfamiliar territory. And so then we're like, one of the best examples of this is um, from, I had Chogyan Trupa Rinpoche, who's a, really famous meditation teacher, very controversial, mind you, because you died of alcoholism, but <laughs> it, he uses this analogy of uh, meditation is like falling through the sky without a parachute. It's scary. You want to cling to things because you know, you're trying to not fall and die. But at some point you realize there's no ground. And so in that moment, there's an awareness that, ah, I can just fall. Mm. It's okay. And, it's unfamiliar territory to go into places where we don't feel like we are inept or we're unworthy because it can be new. It's new territory. Mm. But if we can relax into that experience, if we can start to train our mind to be okay when things don't go our way, right? then these things become more palatable. These experiences become adventurous for us. We start to gravitate towards them. We start to take on a new narrative that we're okay. We're whole. We're complete. We can do things that are scary. And it doesn't change our fundamental belief around ourselves. What is your, and we can wrap up soon because I think you have a thing in like 36 minutes or so. Um, but for people that want to start investing in their own meditation practice, um, one, I'm curious, what does your practice look like presently mm. to start? Like, how, what, what, is it, what does it look like for you? So I begin my practice with about 10 minutes of breath work. Mm. And the specific breath work that I use is a Tibetan Buddhist technique called Vaz breath. Mm. Um, it's a very simple tantric technique that just begins by breathing into the belly and expanding the belly outwards and to the sides. So you just breathe in through the nose. And then you'll hold the breath like that. And you visualize like a vase, which is wider at the bottom than it is at the top. So your breath is out like that. And you hold for between 8 to 20 without losing your breath. And then with your mouth closed, you gently release very quietly. And I do a few rounds of that up to about 10 minutes. And that takes me out of the head. Um, the more... Uh, Buddhist explanation for it is that we have lots of wind energies, so prana, for example, uh, in an Indian system in our body, and it's hard for our mind to be calm and present when there's a lot of speedy energy. And so if we have the awareness that, oh, right now is a lot of speedy energy, then we do this technique. So I'll do 10 minutes of that, and then I'll move into about 10 to 15 minutes of a somatic 
practice called handshake, which is uh, taught by my teacher, Sokni Rinpoche, which is essentially noticing in my body, what do I feel? And instead of trying to understand what I feel or work out where it came from, I can just stay with this pain around my ribs. And if I stay with it long enough, all of a sudden I'll start to feel anger in my body. I'm like, oh, it's anger. I'm just giving myself permission to feel that. And then the next 20 minutes or 15 minutes um, will be a practice called shamatha without support, which is essentially just uh, an awareness practice in which I'm just paying attention to all things without a specific anchor. So I might notice sounds come up, I might notice sensations, I might notice thoughts, and everything is welcome. They come and go, come and go, come and go, and I'm just like observing all of it. Mm. Cool. So that's like 30, 40 minutes? It's about 35, 40 minutes, yeah. Right. Yeah. I didn't start off like that for what yeah, it's that's, worth. That's more than probably most most people would yeah. be willing to. Willing and you to don't do. need to, to do that un, until. And are you, is this every day, twice a day, once a day? Once a day. What time? Uh, as soon as I wake up. Mm. So Every day? When was the last time you missed it? Uh, yesterday. <laughs> what about before that? How consistently are you doing it? Uh, I've been doing this consistently for about uh, this particular technique for about five years. Before that, I did concentration practice, Anapanasati, yeah. every day, um, twice a day for 20 minutes, so 40 minutes. Do you graduate from Anapanasati, which just means focusing on the breath, um, into something else? Is there some hierarchy of what one's like Dristi or whatever could be? Dristi is like a point of focus. Uh, I think Dristi relates to vision, though. Dristi is like a point of focus, yeah. Um, no, there isn't a hierarchy, but I was studying traditional Buddhist meditation, which is known as Theravada Buddhism, which comes from... Um, Sri Lanka in northern uh, southern India that sort of region and then I started studying more Tibetan Buddhism which has an emphasis more on compassion and um, altruism and so the practices just changed that's all mm. cool and then you have uh, a, an app to help people with their own meditation practice open yeah so open is so a, a breathwork and, and meditation app you know we have functional breathing we have transformational breathing we have breathing practices that really help you with meditation and then we really believe in somatic mindfulness so everything is body based so there's yoga pilates um, everything is connected so every practice will have breath work in it meditation in it yoga mm -hmm. movements in it and then we do all of that in collaboration with musicians and artists so we have you know, right um, a relationship with some of the biggest record labels out there and then we curate all the experiences to music great yeah i've used the the app uh, a reasonable amount. I really found it very easy to use, um, and it just it just feels like very digestible and very you know it felt very intuitive. Mm -hmm. So if people are interested in um, investigating some having some type of tool to be able to lean on with that and having guidance, I think some people also just like having like just nothing. Yeah. You know, and I think sometimes there's different flavors of, of, of people. Sometimes I can find having a guide or having music or something like that feel kind of like distracting in a way. So I think there's kind of different flavors and different maybe where a person's at with their own practice. Yeah. or like a timer or something like that is all you need at that point. Yeah, I, I, I also use a thing where it's it's just like a little meditation timer thing and it's just like a gong. You know, like I said, to whatever, it just goes gong and then it goes in the background. It's just like... I don't know. It's just little like whirring sounds or whatever. But you have all you have all of that and more within the open app, and I've I've really enjoyed my experience using that guy. So I appreciate you creating um, a tool, like a really accessible tool for people. Uh, is there anything else you want to? Thank you so much for for doing this. I feel like this is like 
this abounded with with uh, meaningful. No, you are such wonderful, well thought out questions. You kind of I wasn't expecting it based on what you were saying. You were like, yeah, we're just all over the place here. But like you were very organized and yeah. um, the questions were very thought through. So thank you for exploring yeah. these with me. Yeah, thanks, man. Um, should there be, so obviously people can, can jump over to the open app if they want to go deeper in their own practices. Where should people go to if they want to go deeper into like you in particular or maybe just like where, where should people go from here if they want to learn more? Yeah, I mean, you can find me everywhere. Uh, Instagram, Naj Diaz. Instagram. Um, the the book still together i released that in the middle of a pandemic it was free for me on audible by the way yeah, is that how it is did you do that intentionally yeah yeah oh, it is now so, so it's um yeah it's a book around exploring disconnection and cool. how meditation can help us reconnect with ourselves and the world around us oh, great. And it was like three hours so it was super easy and yeah. i did it on like double speed so i like i like knocked the whole thing out that's in a very very quick amount of time well you speak very slowly and meditatively which is like soothing for the nervous system you know, and so it, but it can also put pe- people to sleep. I get well, it. Potentiates <laughs> the possibility of like, I can be soothed and really digest this information. Um, and also I can turn this into something where I like digest a lot of information really quickly. So I went, I went the latter route. Nice. Um, but yeah, it was really cool. And the fact that it's free, is fucking awesome. Um, so thank you so much for creating such cogent, meaningful, um, messages, uh, for all of us to be able to, to, to engage with. Um, Thank you all so much for tuning in. Thank you. All right. You guys devoured that conversation. Once again, I think that the basic principles shared in the Buddhist traditions, I think are just so invaluable no matter what your religious perspective is. I think it's more of a philosophy or a way to live one's life. So it's a really beautiful overlay into whatever one's belief systems may be. Uh, If you want to go deeper into developing your own meditation practice, per mentioned in the episode, I think open is a great starting point. Uh, We also get, I believe we get a 30 day free trial. So you go to, let me look this thing up. It is go open dot com slash align and that is g o dot or period o dash p dash e dash n dot com slash align that is g o period o dash p dash e dash n dash com sorry not dash com god dang it dot com uh, slash align you can start it for 30 days absolutely no cost and i think it's a great way to get things moving in your own meditation practice if that is of interest if you want to share this episode with your friends you can tag myself at align podcast you can tag Manash at Manash Diaz and uh, that is it that is all appreciate y'all big smooches i'll see you next week